Hey everybody and welcome to the Darkcast. This is episode number 95 and I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. Recently I got to sit down and talk with Kevin Backus, who is the Senior Vice President of Entertainment and Game Strategy at Dave & Buster's. Uh, he's been in that position for about six months, so we discuss what it's like to get new arcade games, what the future of arcade games is, as well as his experience with consoles, because he's actually one of the guys that... Uh, helped bring us the original Xbox. So, a lot of good uh, history, a lot of good information in this interview. Hope you enjoy it. If you want to find out more about DarkStation, you can do that at DarkStation.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at DarkStation underscore com. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to us on iTunes, please do that while you're there. Give us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. And um, if you want to drop us an email, you can do that at podcast at DarkStation.com. Uh, so, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. On with the show. Welcome to the Darkcast, Kevin. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Looking forward to the Fourth of July holiday. Uh, um, yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, perhaps when people listen to this, then they'll think back fondly on whatever they they were doing on the Fourth of July. But uh, for me, it's still in the future. Yeah, me as well. That's that's how the internet works. Uh, currently, my plan is to watch the Patriots and Independence Day. Uh, ah. <laughs> Sounds like an action-packed day. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, just, you know, thanks for being on. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, if you could just start by telling us a little bit um, about yourself, what you do at uh, Entertainment and Game Strategy. So uh, I joined Dave and Buster's about uh, about six months ago. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually been a bit of a change for me because my entire career has been mostly in sort of the more traditional home side of gaming consoles pcs that sort of thing uh but it's been fantastic so far you know uh, i love good challenge and the fact that everybody has sort of decided years ago that arcades were dead um makes me even more energized about proving them wrong and showing what kind of the future of playing games outside the home can be so uh you know as the senior vice president of entertainment and game strategy i guess i'm I'm kind of responsible for almost everything relating to games at Dave & Buster's, which, you know, if you don't know, um, Dave & Buster's is a nationwide chain of about 61 locations that combine food and drinks and games and kind of everything you know, everything that I enjoy uh, on a night out. And, um, and so I'm responsible for everything to do with games, with the exception of uh, actually running and maintaining those games which is the provenance of uh, some really exceptional people at each of our locations who are, um, you know, who make sure that the games look and play just as good as the day they came off the assembly line. Okay, good deal. Um, so you said that you've, um, you, you, so uh, the entertainment and game strategy, is that, I guess, a department of Dave & Buster's? Or? No, that's just my title, Senior okay. Vice President of Entertainment and Game Strategy. And, I, gotcha. and you know, gotcha. and, uh, it's, it's a lengthy title, uh, but I think, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've, I've come to realize on my own that, um, you know, that, that it's entertainment and game strategy because, like I said, you know, fortunately I don't have to run around the country, you know, maintaining and repairing those machines. And oh, yeah. That would... Running, that's... That's somebody else's job, but in terms of deciding which ones we buy and what we do with them and, you know, what we might be doing in the future in terms of, um, you know, enhancing and extending those uh, outside of the four walls of our locations and that sort of stuff, that's that's sort of what I spend my time doing. Okay. Well, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what goes into that when you're deciding, you know, what what new game to uh, to get for an arcade or for, you know, Dave & Buster's or what game to get rid of? Sure. Um, well, you know, basically... Uh, as you might expect, we take our cue from our guests. Um, you know, wh- when we're looking at the games to bring in, we're fortunate that we're able to generally 
bring them in under the cover of darkness into one or two of our locations, leave them there for a couple of weeks, see what people do. If they gravitate towards them, they play them, um, you know, what sorts of things uh, they have to say about them, whether they're excited about them, then, uh, you know, that certainly factors heavily into our thinking about whether we're going to pick them up. And um, when it comes time, unfortunately, to say goodbye to a game, same thing. You know, uh, one of the first questions that I asked when I showed up was, where are all the pinball machines? Why don't we have any pinball machines? I mean, I grew up playing pinball, thought it was really cool. What's mm-hmm. going on with that? And they said, well, you know, pinball machines are kind of like record stores. Everybody says, whatever happened to record stores? And you say, well, what's, when's the last time you visited one? Um, hmm, well, not for a while. Yep, that's why there aren't any record stores around. <laughs> well, same thing with pinball at Dave & Buster's. Everybody loves them. They talk about them. They wonder where they are. You put a few out, nobody touches them. Mm. So, you know, same thing with, uh, you know, with, with a few of our other games, you know, the average uh, game at a Dave and Buster's tends to stick around for quite a while because, you know, they're evergreen titles. They, they do well. They're not sort of, uh, they don't get dated very quickly um, mm-hmm. and they're immaculately maintained. And so, uh, so they stick around for a while, but ultimately at some point, you know, there, there are other things that come along that, that uh, take, take the, the place of a game in, in gamers hearts. And uh, so then it's time. Time to say goodbye. Okay. Um, you mentioned that you kind of bring them in under the cover of darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, when you're specifically looking at a, a new arcade to get mm-hmm. to try out, is there anything specific that you're looking for? Sure. You know, I mean, we see a lot of games, and obviously we don't have, you know, the time or the space to test all of them. But, uh, but you know, we're looking at uh, at games that, that we think will really strike a chord, games that are that are exciting, that we think are cool, that, that have maybe some sort of unique aspect to them. Looking for games that are, uh, you know, that are, that are sort of your classic, um, you know, minutes to learn, lifetime to master sort of thing that, mm-hmm. that have, um, you know, that don't take a whole lot of time to, to figure out because, you know, you want to you wanna be able to get right in and start playing the game. But at the same time, um, you know, games that invite you to come back and play them time and again and, and you know, become better and better at them over time. Okay. Um, well, and obviously, uh, you know, David and Buster's is not all in one location. It wouldn't be very successful, I guess, if that were the case. Uh, where are you located, though? So, uh, so we're based in Dallas, Texas. Okay. Uh, the company was founded there, the first location, right behind our uh, world headquarters uh, almost exactly 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago. Oh, wow. And, I had no um, idea was that. Yeah. That kind of legacy. I, Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's it's actually a really kind of cool story. If you have a second, I can sure. uh, kind of give you the the little history of it. You know, yeah, when I absolutely. was joining the company, I I was really pretty impressed by this. So uh, back in the late seventies, you had two guys, Dave and Buster. Um, you know, believe it or not, real people. Uh, I had some questions about that. Thought maybe it was sort of like Betty Crocker or sure, yeah, uh, Mavis Beacon or you know, one of these famous uh, sort of sort of made up celebrity people mm-hmm. but no nope dave and buster actually existed i met them i've spent time with both of them they're really cool guys now in their 60s but both living in dallas both still very close friends anyway so uh dave had uh had an, an arcade and his next door neighbor in the converted uh train station in little rock arkansas where where he had based his arcade uh was a guy named buster corley who had um a restaurant kind of like uh, I kind of I kind of have the impression of it being sort of like a really nice uh, kind of kind of like a TGI Friday sort of a place you know casual dining nice bar area lots of you know potted plants and brass railings and things like that mm-hmm. anyway uh, Dave and Buster noticed that people would come to this you know to this little you know shopping area and they would grab a bite to eat at Buster's and then they'd come over to Dave and play some games or they go play games at Dave's and then they go grab something to eat afterwards at Buster's and they had the great idea, hey, what if, we, what if we built a place where you could have food and drinks and games all under the same roof and just kind of you know, move back and forth? In fact, um, at a Dave & Buster's today, you could, I'm not sure why you would, but you could potentially order a steak while sitting at a, you know, at a Daytona USA racing uh, <laughs> game and, you know, have a, but, you, you know, you certainly can walk around with a drink and, you know, play games and, and um and so they had this idea, and they found a location a couple of years later in Dallas, and the rest is history. Now, you know, like I said, 61 locations across the country, um, you know, a lot still in Texas, through the Midwest, uh, Southeast, East Coast, and, uh, you know, really growing very aggressively, particularly on the West Coast, which is great. You know, I spent most of my professional career 
moving up the West Coast from Los Angeles to San Francisco to Seattle. And, um, you know, I'm very excited to see kind of a lot of our growth plans in, in each of those cities um, to the point that, you know, I think that, that we'll be, uh, you know, within, within easy reach of, of uh, you know, most everybody who has a desire to play these games and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm, really, I'm really thrilled about that. Awesome. Um, just, uh, you know, my own wondering, is there any uh, reasoning that kind of uh, seems to, to dictate why the West Coast is growing faster with because, baby boosters? Yeah, because that, that's sort of, uh, you know, because we have, we have grown very quickly through the, you know, through Texas, then the Midwest, then mm-hmm. the East Coast. And so now it's sort of the, the final frontier. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, so because... You know, because we we have, um, I want to say probably about a half dozen locations uh, in California right now. Um, you know, the opportunities to grow, um, not only in California but Oregon, Washington, um, you know, th- throughout the West is is much greater because, you know, we just we're, we're starting from, uh, oh, you know, a, a little bit lower level as compared to the rest of the country. Okay, gotcha. That obviously makes sense. Um, so now before you went to, to Dave and Buster's, uh, you said that you worked with, you know, PCs and consoles and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, what you used to do? Sure. So I started my career, uh, working in the San Francisco Bay area for a company called Mindscape. Mindscape was, um, was well known for two things. One, it was the first publicly traded video game company on, on a stock market. Um, and two, it was one of the, the earliest uh, publishers of games on CD-ROM back in a time when most publishers were still publishing games, believe it or not, on floppy disk. Mm-hmm. Um, I came in, on uh, on board a little bit after that, uh, but you know it was it was a really interesting education for me because we published games for almost literally everything for uh, PlayStation, for PC, for Mac, for Amiga, for uh, for the Philips CDI, for 3DO. You name it, we developed games for it. And um, after a few years at Mindscape, uh, you know, I, I spent a, an awful lot of my time working with the folks at Microsoft, mostly harassing them about the fact that uh, we didn't get the same kind of marketing support and, and, and love and affection uh, from them that we got from, you know, from the Sonys and Segas and Nintendos of the world. And um, in classic Microsoft fashion, they said, all right, well, you're so smart, you come figure it out. So I went to work for Microsoft as the group product manager for a little technology called DirectX, which you may recall from Would You Like to Upgrade Your DirectX dialog boxes. <laughs> um, but more importantly than the technology of DirectX, which is you know the way that you know the programming interfaces in Windows that you use to develop games, is the fact that um, DirectX was at the time sort of the center of thinking about the game industry inside of Microsoft. Now um, at the time there was, as today, uh, a division dedicated to developing and publishing games under the Microsoft brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about you know Microsoft Flight Simulator and all those you know uh, Age of Empires and all those classic Microsoft titles. But you know when when Bill Gates or Steve Ballmer had a question about what Activision was up to or what Sony's plans were for PlayStation, they obviously didn't call the uh, the Microsoft Games division because. They were competitors with Activision, and they weren't really doing much on PlayStation for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. They would call us, and uh, so um, you know, a couple of years into my time at Microsoft, a bunch of things started happening, kind of really simultaneously, really you know, um, unusual, uh, coincidental things that we shamelessly took advantage of to put forward the idea that Microsoft should build a game console. So four of us uh, sat in a conference room. You know, brainstorming, plotting, and scheming what uh, if we could possibly convince uh, the company to go along with this harebrained idea that Microsoft should build a game console, what it would be like. Mm-hmm. And of course, that ultimately became Xbox. And uh, so, you know, really fortunate to be able to um, to you know spend a little bit of time, you know, outside of my day job on DirectX putting the idea together. And then once once the project took off, uh, first joined it as a uh, what Microsoft calls a, a, a product planner uh, and so uh, I was actually the one responsible for deciding that we would have four controller ports on the front of the box and that we would have uh, um, 
you know, a, a special dedicated AV connector instead of, you know, distinct connections for component and composite and all these kinds of crazy connections that you find on the back of a television set. Mm-hmm. Did that for a little while until actual real live engineers came on board and took over. Uh, and then um, kind of went back to my roots in game publishing by uh, building Microsoft's first third-party organization for console publishers. And oh, wow. so, you know, had to go out to Activision, Electronic Arts, and, of course, all the Japanese companies, Square, Namco, Sega even, um, and convince them, A, we were serious about building a game console because Microsoft had a little bit of a reputation for putting its toe in the water and deciding, brr, that's cold, let's not do that. <laughs> and uh, also that we could compete with the likes of Sony, who'd been so dominant with the original PlayStation. It just mm-hmm. came in from nowhere and just wiped the, the mat with, uh, with Sega and Nintendo, despite all the history that those guys had in the industry. You know, so... Um, did a pretty good job of that. Had you know one of the one of the best launch lineups ever for a console, and um, left with uh, my partner Seamus, who I'd started Xbox with, to go build our own company, um, a production company for video games. And then from that point forward, uh, had a really diverse set of experience, either uh, launching or uh, or running a number of uh, companies. You know, either either related to game. Uh, production or development or distribution, and so uh, you know it's it's been a, it's been a really great opportunity to get a really wide range of experience in a bunch of different things. But boy, this Dave and Buster's thing—you really can't beat it. You know, it's just it's just a lot of fun. Great stable company, growing year after year. Last year was a record-setting year for the company. Uh, great people. Um, you know, thirty years of really established uh, track record and processes and stuff, and so. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of what I've been doing has really been leading up to this. Awesome. Uh, now I have to go back for just a second to something that you said, uh, you know, talking about the controller ports on the front of the Xbox and stuff. Mm -hmm. So do we have you to blame for the little, uh, IR sensor for the remote control so that you could use DVDs on the Xbox? (laughs) Oh, uh, you mean the fact that you had to get the the remote control? Yeah, well, I I, I can, yeah, I'll tell you exactly why. So when we looked at it, you know, we really really wanted to do two things. We wanted to make this thing super powerful, like just just blow the doors off powerful in terms of, you know, what had been seen before in terms of a console. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's one of the reasons why initially we were thinking, geez, you know, it'd be great if we could come out the same time as PlayStation 2, fall of 2000. And it was actually Bill Gates that said, whoa, whoa, whoa slow down a second. You know, if you, if you ship the same time as, as PlayStation 2, you might have arguably a more powerful console, but this thing needs to be clearly better. And so you need another year for technology to kind of catch up to where you want it to be at the price point you want it to be. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so let's, let's, uh, let's hold off a little bit anyway. So, you know, we want to have a really, really powerful piece of hardware, but we don't want to charge an arm and a leg for it. You know, we our our feeling was if this thing came out the door for more than two ninety nine, we were done. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, um, we invested every penny in making the most powerful piece of hardware possible. Now, when we went out and talked to people about what else they wanted this thing to do besides play games, the list was pretty short. You know, people were saying, well, okay, you know, free free CD player in my game console, fine. Free DVD player, okay, that's kind of interesting. You know, I mean, I don't have a DVD player in my bedroom, and I'm going to put my console there, so that's kind of cool. But they didn't want to pl- pay an awful lot for that. Mm-hmm. By building the technology into the console, but by requiring the remote control to unlock it, we put all of the licensing fees associated with DVD, and by the way, it's a significant number, mm-hmm. onto that remote. Oh. So if you just wanted to play games, then you know, then we didn't have to pay the license fees for that, and as a result, you know, we were able to put that money in against the hardware. But if you wanted to play DVDs, you bought the you bought the remote, and that's when we paid the licensing fees to the guys who had invented the DVD standard. So that, in a nutshell, is why you had to have a remote control in order to play DVDs on the original Xbox. That is incredibly interesting. I just know that <clears throat> my younger self was incredibly infuriated at that, that I had to go out and buy this $30 thing, because at that time, I did not have $30. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But, you know, it, it, it was that or charge, uh, you know, 
three twenty nine for the for the console and throw in the remote. And, sure, sure. You know, and there and and believe me, there are plenty of people who would have rather saved the thirty bucks. Yeah. Uh, because they didn't feel really strongly about having to play DVDs on their console. My, how times have changed. Uh. <laughs> See, there, there, there often actually is a reason, and it's not always because you know the company is stupid or greedy. Sure, that that's one thing that I'm I'm constantly amazed at, and you know, mm-hmm. just working you know in the kind of journalism video game industry, uh, it's it's really easy, especially from the especially from the gamer side, it's, it's easy to villainize you know companies and people, and it's like oh they're just doing that because they're money grubbing a holes, and and then yep. you find out it's like no they're they're people sure. that just want to make a good product. Yeah, um, yeah. It's funny, you know, when I joined Microsoft, I looked around for all the, you know, the secret command centers for controlling the world and I never <laughs> actually found any, much to my disappointment. In fact, the most common question I heard on DirectX is, how do we reduce the number of support calls? Like, how do we make this thing more stable so people don't call in? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it wasn't, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't quite as Machiavellian as people would like, myself included. I was, I was very disappointed when we when we finally went to meet Bill Gates. Not not nearly the evil genius that I'd always hoped for. I heard all the stories about you know him screaming at people and telling them that they're the stupidest person in the company. And maybe he had just mellowed by the time that that I joined the company because to me he seemed much more like uh, like everybody's favorite English literature professor. You know, very thoughtful and quiet, and you know, sounding a little bit like Kermit the Frog, but otherwise, you know, pretty much like a professor. Um, so, so what are some of the differences in kind of working with uh, home consoles versus arcades? Well, you know, I think the biggest difference is the fact that when you're when you're going to an arcade, um, your time is somewhat limited, and you're there for a social experience. Mm-hmm. And so, if you look at it, um, arcade games have a lot more in common with mobile games than they do with console games in terms of the the actual game mechanics and the game design. And so, you know, and, it, and, and that's not surprising. You know, most of my friends who design and develop mobile games today will tell you very readily that they're actually inspired by many classic arcade games because a lot of the behaviors are very similar. You're talking about, um, you know, a game that has to be really, really simple to learn. Uh, a game that can be played in short bursts in the case mm-hmm. of an arcade because, you know, the, the arcade operator wants you to put in another quarter every now and then. Uh, in the case of mobile games, because you might be sitting on a train and your stop is coming up and you need to be able to put the game away and come back to it later. In fact, um, I know that there are, uh, you know, uh, there are a number of, of uh, classic arcade designers that have said that, um, you know, in the past they would design their game so they could be played with one hand because the idea was that you're standing there with a beer in one hand and the joystick in your other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the case of a mobile game, just, you know, like you don't want to have to hold the, uh, you don't want to have to put your cell phone like on, on your lap and tap on it with both screens. You're holding it with one hand and you're tapping on the screen with the other. And so, um, you know, so there are a lot of similarities between those kinds of games. In fact, it's it, that's, I think, and part of the reason why we've started to see a number of mobile games coming full circle and becoming supersized as arcade games. You know, I'm thinking uh, in particular Doodle Jump and Temple Run and Cut the Rope. Um, these are games that that we have now that are doing extremely well because you know you can play them on your on your cell phone, master mm-hmm. the game, then come into our place, play it on a giant size screen, and win tickets. You can exchange for prizes, everything from you know, shot glasses and coffee mugs all the way up to an Xbox or an iPad. And um, and it makes the transition seamlessly because it's the same basic, uh, you know, it's the same basic concepts that, that many really good arcade games have that go into the development of these uh, mobile games. Awesome. Now, obviously, you're not the one that is making these games, but what is that adaptation kind of like because you know thinking about something like mm. cut the rope you know that's that's using a touch screen you're swiping across a, a little mm-hmm. string making candy drop uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to really correlate at least in my head to you know uh, you know joystick or, or buttons or anything like that yeah well and fortunately uh, you are exactly right uh, cut the rope in Dave and Buster's is played with a giant size touch screen oh. and so you actually do 
Um, you know, it is, I believe, one of the largest uh, touchscreen panels available, um, and uh, uh, you you do exactly as you described. You you walk up to it, and you can swipe from left to right. Right now, you know, there are uh, there are other game developers who have actually modified things with varying degrees of success. One of the more successful ones that I've seen is actually the adaptation of Temple Run, where they're using a trackball. And at first I thought, okay, this is going to be kind of goofy. But on the other hand, you know, you start playing it, it's the same basic um, movement. You know, you, you put your finger on the, on the trackball instead of on the screen, and you move right to turn, you move left to turn, you move up to jump, you move down to slide. And so, um, you know, but you're, you're, the only difference is that you can actually see the whole screen because your finger is not on top of it. Yep. Um, so uh, it, it works actually remarkably well. Um, you know, that said, most of the games that we have, um, you know, actually do use touchscreens. Doodle Jump uses a joystick. It works pretty well for that kind of mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I said, Temple Run uses, uh, uses a trackball, but Cut the Rope is a touchscreen. Fruit Ninja, which we have, is a touchscreen. And I would expect that, you know, many, if not most of the um, conversions of the future will probably also use touchscreens. Okay. Uh, now, now I've got an idea, and so you can just have this for free, but I think it'd be kind of cool to play um, Temple Run, almost like Dance Central, where you're leaning left and right, jumping, <laughs> that sort of thing. So if you want to hand that off, you know, feel free. Uh, you know, I'll, it's, I'll, it's, I'll take the royalty checks. It's <laughs> funny to say that. Um, so uh, I went to Japan earlier this year mm-hmm. uh, just to kind of check out what they have and try to plead with them to bring some of their really cool stuff over to the U.S. And uh, one of the huge sensations this past winter in Japan, Konami brought out the new generation of Dance Dance Revolution called Dance Dance Evolution, which uses okay. a, an honest-to-God Kinect camera. I mean, it says right next to it, Kinect. And um, and so it's basically the next generation of Dance Dance Revolution, but it's it's uh, you know it's one where it actually looks at your full range of motion. Mm-hmm. And seeing these kids um, in arcades around Tokyo putting on a full, you know, uh, like Backstreet Boys level choreographed thing so that they can have a perfect performance on Dance Dance Evolution is remarkable. Um, now, I think it's going to be a little while before we're going to see that here in the U.S., mostly because Konami has done a fantastic job of locking up rights to some of the greatest pop hits in Japan, but mm. apparently have uh, no idea how to get the, the same kind of range of music in the U.S. just yet. Um, so I think it's going to take a little while for them to get the right music, unless you know, you're know you a big fan of J-pop, which uh, has its, its pluses and minuses. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think that's, that's a holdup in bringing that, but clearly it's coming. You know, I think that, uh, all, you know, uh, motion cameras and what they can do, um, in the home is something that I think has not gone unnoticed by the arcade game manufacturers. Very cool. Um, so, uh, and the information that, uh, Joel, my, um, editor in chief sent me said that, uh, you've also been helping bring 40 games into Dave and Buster's. (laughs) Um, what, now, what, I know what a, what, I know what a 3D game means. is. Well, yeah. What is a, a 40 game? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I kind of had the same reaction myself when I when I started looking at the industry a little bit more closely. So, 4D games, as as best as I can tell, is a little marketing speak that that the arcade industry cooked up to describe a game that has not only um, 3D, uh, you know, 3D displays where you go in and you put on antibacterial uh, 3D glasses and you have surround sound, all that sort of stuff. That's that's 3D, mm-hmm. but but also adds atmospheric effects like uh, you know like compressed air that you know that jets out and hits you on the back of the head and makes you turn around and wonder who tapped you or um, you know or uh, strobe lights or uh, you know fog machines or things like that. And so it basically creates an even even deeper sense of of um, realism uh, and kind of uh, immersion because you you're you have other things going on other than just what you see and what you hear on the screen um, and you know around you through the speakers that are in, inside the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the latest example of that is is this unbelievable game that we picked up from Namco. Very expensive game, but 
but really, really exciting. It's called um, it's called Dark Escape 4D, and um, it's basically a um, it's a shooter game on rails where you go inside of the cabinet, and you you, you know up to two players can play at the same time. Uh, in front of you is a gun mount, and uh, in the gun mount, there's actually uh, some technology that can detect your your pulse rate. Um, okay. So I, I'm not. I got to tell you, I'm not exactly sure what the game does with that information aside from displaying it on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, but it is kind of cool to think about the fact that you know that it's aware of kind of you know if you're getting kind of excited or jumpy or uh, or startled, uh, you know what that does in terms of of the game itself. But the game is actually really well done. I mean, it's you know, it, it's um, uh, it, it's a horror themed game. Uh, it's a it's a zombie shooter. Uh, the the cutscene at the beginning uh, has you know, it's it's kind of reminiscent, at least to my perspective, of Saw, um, and uh, you know, kind of the best of of the horror genre, and uh, and it has you know, like I said, it has some of these atmospheric effects in particular. Um, you know, a really interesting, you know, when you're about, when you're about to be, um, attacked by zombies, you actually get a little, uh, a little jolt, a little, uh, a little compressed air. Um, and it, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty cool. So, you know, it's, and it's also one of those things that you can't really, uh, you know, in, from a practical standpoint, deliver in a mass way to, to the home market. Sure. Not only because of the cost and because of you know the, the logistics of that, but also the fact that if I'm a game developer, you know, I, and let's say let's say Sony comes out and says, okay, we're going to be supporting uh, we're going to be supporting this sort of thing. We're going to have some sort of special chair that we're going to build for you. And you know, as a game developer, I'm thinking, all right, so it's not coming with the PlayStation Four. So how many people are likely to buy that chair? Eh, probably not that many. Do mm-hmm. I really want to take you know? one of my best programmers and have them spend a, a week or two supporting that kind of, that kind of feature when, you know, maybe it's not going to be around that much. Maybe we're the only game that supports it and, and that sort of stuff. And so, you know, it's one of the reasons why I think Microsoft was so eager to uh, pack in the connect with, with Xbox one, because, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you don't, if you can't be assured that every single one of your uh, players has some piece of technology, then, uh, it forces you to design the game two ways: those that, for those that have and those that don't have. Right, and obviously you're going to spend the most time on what's the most common denominator, which are you know, in the case of the Connect, is going to be people without Connect. Yeah, yeah, you bet, you bet, and uh, and so I think that's you know, it's it's interesting. Um, historically, you know, as you know, arcades were really the place where you saw new technology first mm-hmm. because. Uh, each game was unique and designed from the ground up, both hardware and software, and uh, they were a little on the pricey side compared to a console or a console title. And so, uh, you know, it was no problem to invest in technology before it came out somewhere else. Well, somewhere along the line, I think, you know, the industry lost its way, and a lot of the new innovations started coming first on console and mobile and, and other types of home devices. And uh, And it's unfortunate. You know, I've been lucky enough to... Uh, become friends with um, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari and the creator of Chuck E. Cheese. And he reminded me a few months ago that he used to spend a lot of his time out at research labs, you know, Bell Labs and places like that. And the scientists would he'd say, what are you working on? They'd go, well, you know, we have this new piece of technology for, let's say, I don't know, video conferencing, for example. And uh, But you know, we, we don't know if this is ever going to you know see the light of day because it's very expensive and it's very large and very bulky. And he'd say, "Hey, I know what to do with that." So um, you know, so he would, uh, you know, he would look at arcades as a link between the, you know, between the research lab and the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it starts off in the research lab. A few years later, it's in an arcade, and a few years after that, it's in the home. And um, I'd love to see a return to that kind of, of uh, thing where, you know, you can do things in an arcade game that you can't really do in a home game. And sure. Hopefully at some point we'll get back to that. Um, so, you know, just kind of thinking about new technology that's, that's on the rise, have you been able to play or, you know, um, work with the Oculus Rift or anything Absolutely. like that? Yeah, actually, um, you know, uh, uh, a few of my good friends uh, – are over at that company, and um, I actually visited them about a month ago and had a chance not only to 
work with um, their the existing uh, developer version of the technology, mm-hmm. but actually to take a look at uh, their next generation hardware, which they unveiled at E3, which is just going to be a, a game changer. I mean, it's it's so thin and light and you know high resolution, and I think that 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 matches up to people's expectations. Mm-hmm. I think that you know it's it's always interesting. Um, when you when you when you work in technology, you not only have to do something that lives within the realms of what's realistically practical, you have to exceed not only what 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 people have right now, but also what they expected in their minds when they imagine what this thing's going to be like. And I think mm-hmm. I think it's going to be very interesting. Unfortunately, I myself kind of suffer from from three D motion sickness, and so I, I could only do it for a few minutes before I had to sort of go and catch my breath. But uh, Boy, it was you know it's it's uh, it's it's really pretty spectacular. Uh, is is there any other technology that you've been able to see that if you have seen it you can talk about um, similar to that? Um, not necessarily in the the virtual reality realm, but just other stuff that you couldn't do on home consoles. But yeah, you know, really I, there's neat. there's a lot of that stuff. If you look around on YouTube, if you look around on the internet, there's you know people are always doing really interesting things. I mean. Um, I, I remember uh, um, seeing uh, going through a train station in, in Osaka where they have these things called water printers where they're able to, there are streams of water, you know, kind of like a sheet of water, and they're able to kind of, um, you know, somehow, I mean, it's almost like magic. They're able to create forms and words and shapes out of the cascading water by kind of interrupting the flow of the water from each of those little, uh, those, those little tiny, tiny, um, uh, you know, little, I don't know what you call them, I guess faucets, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, little sprayers. And, um, and it's, it, you know, you can't help think like, well, what else could be done with this? And, um, you know, you look at like, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that guys have done, you know, uh, different like kind of technology hacks where people have, built, you know, piano uh, keyboards into the stairs leading into a train station. Train stations mm-hmm. seem to be popular for this sort of thing. There's <laughs> a lot of people go there. Um, you know, so there's there are a lot of things that people are doing that are kind of inspirational. And you think, okay, well, how could you apply this in a different way that that gives you kind of a really interesting, entertaining experience? Because I think that's what people are really looking for is some sort of experience, uh, and I think you know there's there's a lot of that sort of stuff that's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, motion cameras, um, similar to like Kinect, or uh, you know there are other there are other companies that have technology very similar to Kinect. Um, I think that's going to be very transformative. It's interesting because the one thing that concerns me a little bit about VR headsets like like Oculus is the fact that in general we're moving to much more natural interfaces. Mm-hmm. You know, with Connect, you don't even need to hold a a, a gamepad anymore. You are basically the controller. Sure, I just, that, that's somebody's actually used that as their tagline. But um, <laughs> the uh, but uh, you know, with with a VR headset, you're actually strapping something on. Right. And in fact, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me to see sort of um, like little VR um, theme parks where you know you can go in and you put on a little suit with. Uh, you know, with with tracking devices and and headsets and uh, you know maybe some physical objects that map to whatever's in the virtual world, and you walk around in this environment and you do that, that kind of stuff. Very cool, very very immersive, but ultimately not exactly the most frictionless experience. Uh, yeah. So you know, so it's it's going to be an interesting trade off. How your experience to be uh, versus how much kind of hassle do you want to go through to have that experience? Yeah, I'm I'm curious to know if you have uh, if you've ever seen the uh, there's a YouTube video by a guy named um, Johnny Chung Lee, uh, which he used a a Wii remote to inverse. Um, it actually uses the uh, the Wii remote to do the the tracking itself, not the you know kind of the other way around with the mm-hmm. uh, IR bar on the TV. Uh, and with that, he was able to do head tracking that didn't require a headset. Um, and so you can kind of move around and you know basically look around the corner of the edge of your TV um, to kind of make it look like the picture is behind the TV, not 
um, you know, not flat with the TV, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, no, I'm, I'm not familiar with that in particular, but I know that Microsoft Research did something similar where they've actually used a, used a projector um, and so, uh, and they've kind of combined that so that, um, the entire room takes on the, uh, the appearance of whatever's happening on the screen. And so mm-hmm. you actually have like, you know, kind of an entirely enveloping experience with, with that sort of thing. You know, I'm also, uh, just this week, uh, Apple named as one of their, you know, new and notable apps for the iPad, this thing that was developed by glasses.com where, uh, it will actually, uh, 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 map uh, an image of your face onto a, a 3D wireframe that it constructs itself, and allows you to see what different styles of glasses would look like on your face. Oh, and I wow. think that you know that that sort of stuff is you know is really really fascinating. And there's just more and more of these kinds of things happening every day because the you know you're starting to see the fundamental building blocks of being able to recognize you know first we had shazam where you're able to recognize the sound and then you had uh into now which was able to recognize what television show you're watching in real time as you were watching that show mm-hmm. um and then you know and then you build on that uh, you know and you have that now second screen applications that um you know as you're watching a show it will tell you interesting things about you know what you're seeing and and so you know you sort of kind of go up this hierarchy of things where you start off with these very, very basic things like, can we actually determine what it is that you're listening to? And then, you know, what can you do if you apply that against a database of, of, of uh, you know, of television shows? And then what do you have, you know? So I think that all those things kind of ultimately get synthesized into something that that is interesting in one aspect or another. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, I kind of, kind of veered off from where this question, I guess, would have originally fit. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned earlier uh, was talking about you know, how arcade games and um, mobile games are fairly similar because they're used for bite-sized kind of gameplay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things with mobile games, at least for me, is you know, I, I can play a mobile game for a minute, two minutes, and I, I'm good for a mm-hmm. long time. I don't have to go back. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously with arcade games, you want people to put in the quarter, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to, to keep playing. So mm-hmm. my question is, I guess, uh, obviously you have to, to make video games that fit with the atmosphere of Dave and Buster's to kind of have mm-hmm. that bite size. But how do you, mm-hmm. I guess, develop the atmosphere to make people want to continue playing those bite sized experiences? There, there are a bunch of ways you can do that off the top of my head. You know, the, the, the three primary ways that we see that, that the whole thing fits together is, first of all, you know, by having lots and lots of different games. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in an average Dave & Buster's, we'd have, I'd say, you know, anywhere around maybe 200 different games. So, you know, so you play a game for a couple of minutes, you're fine, you're good, then you go on another one. Then you go on another one, then you go on another one. Pretty soon a few hours have passed and, you know, you're, you're ready to go home. Um and so, you know, even if, even if you basically, you, you played it for a couple of minutes and okay, I got it. I'm good. Well, great. We've got, you know, 199 more games for you to play. <laughs> the, the second thing is that, um, you know, one of the big transformative moments in the history of arcades was when people started, uh, developing games that you could play to win tickets, you could exchange for prizes. And so today the vast majority of the of the gameplay that goes on in a Dave and Buster's, uh, the vast majority of the number of plays, the number of of, of swipes uh, that we see are in these kinds of games, what we call redemption games, because you can redeem the tickets for prizes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And redemption games are are you know are uh, are huge, and they lend themselves to repeat play because you're trying to win more and more and more tickets, so that you can go and get yourself an an iPad or a PlayStation or you know, something like that. And so, um, so then it becomes, you know, as much about the actual game instance as it is about the, the macro game, which is I'm trying to win this thing. Um, and, uh, you know, and so I think that, that also lends itself to, you know, to repeat play. And then, then finally the obvious, which is that, you know, you design a game in such a way that it becomes more and more challenging and addictive as you play it. Go back to, 
Space Invaders, go back to Pac-Man, go back to you know the 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 absolute dawn of the arcade industry. These are games that started off, you know, um, you know Donkey Kong. You you start off okay, you know, did pretty well, cleared that level. Next level, a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Next level, even harder, and so on and on and on. And you know, if you want to get to the end of the game, then you have to, you know, you have to continue to play it because. You know, you're constantly facing an obstacle that you can't overcome, and then you you try and you try, and with with experience and uh, and with time, then you figure out the solution to that that challenge, and you get on to the next level. And you know, there's still uh, today a, a huge number of games that come out in arcades that deliver that kind of experience. Like I said, you know, uh, moment to learn, lifetime to master, and um, and uh, you know, so that's you know, and and that's also. Hopefully, what's happening in a lot of other kinds of games, particularly mobile games, where you know, unfortunately, if you felt like okay, I played this for a few minutes, I'm I'm done with it. What that says to me is that it was a game that wasn't really designed in a way that provided you an enticement to play it. Think about Angry Birds. I mean, people love Angry Birds. Why? Because it starts off okay. It's real simple. You know, I do the thing and I knock over the stuff and I get it. Then the next one a little bit harder. The next one even harder. And um, and so on and so on. And and so I think that you'd find few people who play Angry Birds for a minute or so and then go, okay, okay, I got it. Uh, but if it's if it's repetitive, if it's not paced well, if it's not increasing in its level of, of difficulty, yeah, I could totally see that. Well, I, I guess I should tell you most of the games that I play on mobile platform are, are things like Flow, which are just very, you know, mm. simple logic, well, not necessarily simple, but um, very kind of clear logic puzzles that... You know, it's like okay, I drew those lines together. I'm good. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So no, I, I, I can see that. Um. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people have the opinion that arcades are dead. Um. You mentioned earlier that you know at some point along the way, uh, they kind of lost their way. But obviously, arcades aren't dead. You have a job. Uh, Dave and Buster's had a, a record year last year. Uh, what? Why do you think people have that perception? I think because at one point arcades were the only place you could go to get that kind of experience, and so uh, the the impression was that you know at at one time there were arcades everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean everywhere, and you know and people would go to them, and it was just a prevalent thing. Well, over time, um, with the rise of console games, the arcades didn't really do anything to set themselves apart at least in the minds of the consumer. And so a lot of them started shutting down. So people saw the arcade that they went to is, you know, now a, a Dunkin' Donuts or, you know, or a Starbucks. And so, so um, there is no doubt that arcades are not what they once were in terms of the number. Um, now, Dave & Buster's has been successful, I think, because they have distinguished themselves. Much like when, you know, when television came out, the movie industry reacted with, obvious fear and panic if you go back uh you know uh there was a time when uh, there was an edict from the studio bosses not to even mention television or show it in a movie lest the consumer get the idea you know the moviegoer get the idea that gee what is this strange box that i've never seen before i went to this movie today i should go and look into that well you know obviously um if you go back to the to the 30s when you know, movies were your primary uh, form of, of escape entertainment. Uh, and you compare it to the, let's say, the 60s when uh, TV started to become very, very prevalent in everybody's home. Um, you know, the number of movie theaters that were around d- declined and, um, you know, and, and, and they, they weren't quite what they were, but, but they didn't disappear altogether. Why? Because there were, because the movie theaters evolved to become something different than uh, than television, and because um, they, uh, you know, because they 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 serve a different function. Television, as you know, I'm sure you probably agree, is a lot more sort of um, you know sort of momentary. It's kind of you know something that you consume very quickly. It's not really there's not a lot of ceremony to it. Whereas mm-hmm. a movie, you know, you want to go see a movie, you know. Because you want to see it on the big screen, because it's not out yet on DVD, because you know it's you're going out on a date, and it would be awkward to bring her back to your place to watch a DVD. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, and so there are reasons that have to do with more sort of 
kind of social experience or the, the kind of quality of experience you want to have or that sort of thing that, uh, that go beyond the fact that, um, you know, if, if I told you tomorrow that, um, you know, uh, oh, The Lone Ranger came out this weekend, okay? It's a, that's a big screen movie, right? I mean, it's really impressive. Maybe you're not a really big Lone Ranger fan. Let's say I told you, um, actually, better example. Okay, J.J. Abrams is going to do the next Star Wars movie. Yeah. I tell you, okay, it's coming out next weekend. Here's a copy of the DVD, which I will give to you on Friday when it's out in theaters, and you can watch it on your TV at home. Or here's a free ticket to the best movie theater in your town with the surround sound and the big screen and the 3D and all that kind of stuff. Which one would you take? I would actually probably take the DVD um, because yeah. the, the only thing that I dislike about theaters is all the other people. Right. When, when people laugh at parts that I don't think are funny or they stand right. up and cheer at parts that I'm just like, you realize they don't hear you. <laughs> right. Um, but otherwise, if I could go to the theater alone, right. then uh, theater, absolutely, hands down. Sure. And I think that, you know, and I think, I think a lot of people would actually go to the theater regardless because, because of that social experience. You know, I think, for example, uh, I remember for, for a while um, when I was living in Seattle, I was on this mailing list where I would get an email saying, hey, tonight there's a screening of the new Adam Sandler comedy. Um, if you're one of the first, you know, 100 people to respond to this email, you can come to it. Now, what were they doing? They were filling up the theater at a press screening for the local film critics mm -hmm. with average moviegoers because there is something strange for most people about seeing a movie by yourself where nobody, you know, it's like why we have laugh tracks. Everybody hates laugh tracks. But the fact is for a lot of a certain type of sitcom, it's kind of weird when they're not there. You know, I mean, sure. for, for really well done things, you know, for really well done programming um, you know, I mean, like Arrested Development with a laugh track would be a disaster. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, but if you think about, you know, um, if you think even even a well well written show like like The Big Bang Theory probably would feel kind of weird if it, and empty if you didn't have that, because we have been conditioned that, you know, that that entertainment is something that's consumed in a group going back to, you know, going back to the theater. You know, when people go to the theater, you, you see with other people and there's kind of a shared experience that people have um, as viewers. So I would expect that, you know, most people, if they had the opportunity to go out, you know, with a, with a friend, with a group of friends, um, you know, and see some sort of prestige, you know, big blockbuster movie uh, the day that it comes out on a big screen, they'd probably take that option if it were available to them. Uh, that said, you know, I think that uh, we've even seen that because of the rise of piracy with the, you know, with, with most new blockbuster films hitting the Internet within, you know, within hours of, of the first screening somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is the opportunity, I think, for many people to see movies at home, certainly not in the same kind of quality because they're usually, you know, camcorder rips that, that look, you know, grainy and washed out and terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, but the opportunity is certainly there if you don't want to be hassled. Uh, and I think that the same thing goes for arcades as well. It's a, it's an opportunity for you to get out with a group of friends and, you know, grab you know grab a meal and grab a drink and play a bunch of different games and win some prizes and you know feel that you've you spent a really a really uh enjoyable evening together yeah well uh you're just talking about food right there reminded me i don't know if you've ever been to the the theaters that have the um menus you can order dinner during the movie sure. and all that kind of stuff sure um there's one not too far from me and uh so actually if if i was going to go there then yeah it doesn't matter who's coming along if i can eat a steak there you While go. watching the movie, yeah, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, I was really, um, I was really perplexed the first time that I heard about one of those places because I couldn't figure out exactly, you know, how it worked. Um, and then when I saw, you know, you, you, uh, uh, you know, you can kind of put a little, you know, little order form up, and you know, they'll sort of keep an eye on it, and they'll go and grab it, and ninja like they'll bring your food back to you and it magically appears in front of you. It's, mm -hmm. it's pretty clever. It is. Only, you know, the only thing better would be, you know, Jetson style pneumatic tube that all of a sudden, <laughs> thump, there's your hamburger. Um, but you know, maybe we'll get there soon. Hopefully. Um, so we're, we're almost at the end of this. Um, but I've got, uh, well, we've got, 
a set of questions and then one more kind of real question, I guess. Sure. Uh, and this one is, you know, what do you think consoles could learn from arcades and vice versa? Well, uh, let me take let me take the vice versa first because okay. that's the obvious one. Um, one of the things that really has surprised me is um, how uh, little the arcade industry has learned from um, you know from the explosion of multiplayer gaming. Uh, mm-hmm. In particular, not necessarily uh, the fact that you play against other people head to head, although I think that's pretty cool and that's that's probably something that's coming soon. But also, you know, simple things like like achievements and leaderboards and mm-hmm. you know stuff that we take for granted on Xbox Live or even you know iOS Game Center or you know or those kinds of things that doesn't exist today. Every single one of our games is an isolated island, mm-hmm. and if it has a high score table on it, classic old school AAA or if you're <laughs> like me, ASS, um, <laughs> you know, then then you've got you've got your high score table, but it doesn't talk to anybody and say, look, you know, this is what the high score table is, the leaderboard. There's no way for us to say, you know, here's the number one tip and blocks player in the whole country. Or uh, this guy, you know, was, was the best player of uh, Big Bass Wheel last week or, or anything like that. There's no mm-hmm. way for us to do that. It's just something that has occurred to, to anybody in the industry so far. Or it's not something that, that the operators are interested in running. Or it's not something that they have the expertise. For whatever reason, it just hasn't come. And so... That's going to change. You know, I believe that within the next couple of years, arcades will catch up with, if not surpass, uh, consoles in terms of providing. Um, I, I hate using this term, but let's say let's call it cloud-based services, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, where where your progress, your player, your car customizations, your um, unlocked content, that sort of stuff, uh, you're able to access that. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen to make that happen, um, and the industry is starting from zero. Right. Um, but I believe it's coming and I believe that's something they're, they're, they're clearly going to learn directly from consoles and mobile platforms in terms of what, um, what consoles can learn. I think it's really, um, about how to service the coming tidal wave of very casual, uh, game players. Mm. I think that, you know, for a long time I was really kind of threatened by the idea that, you know, people my age who grew up playing games but were no longer sort of self-identified gamers because it wasn't you know, like they weren't part of the lifestyle anymore. Mm-hmm. What happens when those people decide they want to start playing games again? We've seen what happened. It happened on mobile devices, right? So people who say, I'm not a gamer, I don't play games, play tons of games, but they play yeah. them on iPhones and Android phones and 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 that's kind of how they play. Well, you know, what you see when you look at the strategy for both Microsoft and Sony talking all about television and, you know, sports and movies and stuff and TV, 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 sports, 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 Call of Duty, Call of Duty. Um, what's happening really is an attempt to try to become more inclusive and to draw more people into gaming by providing a wider range of content and a wider range of entertainment. And I think that's going to be successful. I think that, you know, especially as people... Um, you know, as uh, you know, more and more people grew up playing games. Um, the whole, like, the range of ages of people who play games frequently is going to continue to expand. Mm-hmm. And but you know, these are not people who spend their time, unfortunately, listening to your podcast or checking out websites <laughs> or hanging out at Best Buy or you know, sure, it's, sure. it's not part of their lifestyle anymore. But they still have a passion for games, and that's good for all of us. Like I said, I was nervous thinking about, well, what's going to happen? You know, are we going to dumb this down? Is it going to be the least common denominator? And in fact, it's the exact opposite. Because of the amount of money that's now rolling into blockbuster games like Call of Duty, you can see the kind of investment that the companies are able to make in the next generation. And you have a multi-layered experience where you could play it on a very surface level, just kind of single player, shoot up a bunch of stuff, complete some missions, or you can go really deep. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's really awesome. Now, when these, you know... As this happens, um, you know the consoles, console developers need to be um, more aware of the fact that you know you don't have kind of a shared language. Right now, you go, you, you know, we have all kinds of terms that we use in gaming that we all understand what it means. Sure. If somebody's not really in the scene, and you use one of these terms, they're lost. You can't assume that people understand how things work, how things operate. Which is something that happens in arcade games. We, you know, we sort of assume that everything is kind of, 
you know, needs to be very, very, you know, very obvious, very self-evident. And Mm -hmm. nobody wants to spend a lot of time kind of understanding the particulars, how to get something done. And I think that that's something that's going to be something that's going to influence them. And then beyond that, it's my hope that we will start to, you know, get back into a, a habit of finding really cool, interesting technology, whether that's software technology or hardware technology, that's just not feasible to release on a cost-effective basis in mass market products. Um, but, you know, we'll sort of show the way for how that can be done. And then the home markets will, you know, will take and build on that and deliver something even more compelling to a broader audience. Yeah, I think that's definitely spot on. And I think that's definitely something that especially mobile games are, are doing really well. Uh, recently, I was talking to um, a group of guys at uh, Skyjoy Interactive, and they're in Miami. And uh, they were talking about how they have a one-second rule. Uh, basically, if um, you know, if a game mechanic or a story beat or, or whatever, uh, if it takes you more than a second to kind of get it, then mm-hmm. it's that's too much. That that doesn't mean it's only going to flash on screen for a second, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it's got to be readily available and just make sense. Uh, I think that's a little aggressive. I, I probably wouldn't have chosen one second, sure, or, sure, maybe a few seconds. But but I think that their their basic idea is absolutely right. You know, if it takes a lot of thought and explanation and that sort of stuff. I mean, I had an experience recently. We use um, swipe cards to activate our games. Tokens are like ancient history for us. <laughs> we use kind of a you know kind of a prepaid card, much like you'd get at a Starbucks. Sure. And so you're able to go and put a bunch of money on, it, and then you just can run around and play games and not have to worry about holding a big you know, big piggy bank full of, uh, of metal to play these games. Right. Well, you know, I was in one of our locations recently and a little kid came up to me and said, Hey, how do I play this game? And I said, well, you know, you spin the wheel, you press the button, you do this, you do that. I go, no, no, no. How do I play the game? I said, well, you know, you spin the wheel, press the button. Do no, no, no. How do I like, how do I, and he kind of gestured with his card. I said, Oh, you know, here's a kid who's never had to, you know, swipe a, a debit card through a reader at a seven 11 or, you know, pump gas, that sort of stuff. He, you know, it's not obvious to him how you, you know, you have to put the thing, you know, stripe side down and, you know, facing in towards the thing. And so, you know, it's counterintuitive because it's not Mm -hmm. part of his average set. Now for most people, they go, Oh, I understand how this works because I do it at the grocery store all the time. Right. But, um, you know, but that's the sort of stuff where, uh, you know, you can't assume, um, that sort of knowledge about that sort of thing. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's definitely true. And here, here's one more idea for you. You, know, you can use this. You know, to, don't worry about paying me royalties on this one. But you know, you know we have, have a, you know you know we have a contest <laughs> right now with uh, Comedy Central, MTV, and VH1. Where if you give them a good idea that gets selected, we'll actually build that game and give you free games for life. So you might actually ah. want to go to that website instead of telling ah. me this idea. I may, but this is isn't actually for a game. Uh, but if you use the card, uh, kind of like you know, a library card or a, a debit card that is uniquely identified to you, then when you yeah. swipe the card, the game knows it's you and kind of loads up your, you know, what on an Xbox would be your Xbox Live avatar with your that gamer is score, a genius idea, or whatever. So I, I've never ever thought of that. So uh, yeah, there you go. If we do that if 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 we ever do that idea, that will be entirely credited to you. All right, that that's all I ask. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. All right, so our last set of questions is our lightning round, uh, and okay. uh, one of our other writers, uh, Brian Tyler, who's unavailable to be on today, uh, he came up with this and is kind of inspired by the uh, James Lipton inside the Actors Studio. Um, so, uh, six questions. So, answer do you, them. do you, do you bleep profanity if you're going to ask me my favorite swear word? Uh, no. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Then I can curse up a storm. Yeah, absolutely. Gotcha. Um, Ready to go. Uh, I'm not going to ask you what your – well, actually, go ahead. What's your favorite swear word? <laughs> <laughs> I would have to think about that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so you don't, have to, you don't have to think about these too much if you don't want to. Uh, try to answer them as quickly as possible. And the first one is, who is your favorite video game protagonist? Protagonist? Yeah. Uh, Chell. All right. Um, who is your favorite antagonist? Mm, the Master Control Program in Tron. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, favorite arcade game, uh, either classic or modern? Robotron. All right. Uh, least favorite trope in a video game? 
least favorite trope in a video game? Mm-hmm. Uh, alien hordes. <laughs> nice. That's a good one. I uh, haven't heard that one before. Uh, all right. Next is if you if you know tomorrow you find out you couldn't work on video games anymore. Uh, what other profession would you like to attempt? Mm, what else would I do? That's actually a tough question. The only thing I've ever done in my career is work in video games. Um, what else would I do? Uh, I don't know. Probably airline pilot. Okay. All right. And the final question is, at the end of your life, uh, when you come to the pearly gates of the Mushroom Kingdom and Toad looks over the book of the deeds of your life, what do you want him to say to you? Uh, ready next level. <laughs> nice. All right, Kevin, well, thank you for joining us today on the Darkcast. Really enjoyed our talk. Um, and, uh, well, I, I wish you the best. I hope everything goes well uh, for the future. And I hope you guys use my idea for David Busters. And I hope it's a smashing success. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right. Have a good one. Thanks.